0: If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter two. I am encouraged to have such a captive front row audience, and so I am I'm expecting you all to listen intently. Um, what what a joy to have to have such a pew full of young people who are eager to sit in here, at least for now. Uh, well, so we are Matthew chapter two. We're going to be reading the first 12 verses in just a minute. Um, by the outset, let me, just, let me just get a few things out in the open. Uh, first, I realize that since we have not yet officially celebrated Christmas, today's sermon will seem unacceptably out of place to some of you because it takes place after the birth of Christ. Okay? And so if that's you, I'm sorry. Okay? We're going to preach Matthew 2. That's what we are. But I'm even more sorry because some of you are going to be confronted with a a few misconceptions that you've probably believed your entire life. So so I just want to put it on the table here at the outset um, about what's going to happen here in Matthew 2, because in Matthew 2, we're going to to study, we're going to see the visit of the wise men or the magi. And and Matthew is the only gospel that records this visit. So all that we can know for sure about this visit has to come from Matthew chapter 2. And so we're going to see that there's some traditionally held beliefs about this event that just aren't. True or at least verifiable, and so first, I just want to I just want to give you the three of them. First, like I said, this place this event takes place after Jesus was born, and it's almost certain that it's months, maybe even a year or two years after his birth. So, so all the pictures or Christmas cards, if you've sent a Christmas card with a picture of wise men and a manger and a baby Jesus, that's just wrong. Okay, he wasn't a baby; they didn't come to to where he was born in, in the immediate aftermath. Okay, so so Jesus is probably a toddler. Uh, second, these magi, they're not kings, okay? They're, they're probably wealthy because of their gifts, but they're, they're certainly not kings. They're magi. They, they're students of stars. They're, they're astrologers or stargazers. Their profession would be looking at the celestial bodies, reading the bodies and, and interpreting them, okay? So, so they're not kings from the East. So they're not kings. That's the other one. Then, then finally, there isn't any solid evidence that there are only three of them, okay? So, so. There were three gifts, and that's why I think tradition has assumed there were three of them, but we've all given a gift from two people, right? Maybe, maybe you have a family of, of six like us, and so you give one present from six people, right? That, that may have been the case. So, so there may have been three, but, but that's not ever clearly stated either. And so that means that this week, when, when discussing or thinking through songs to sing this morning, the song that I initially thought of was We Three Kings. And I quickly realized, wait a minute, there's two inaccuracies in the title alone, uh, so obviously we're, we're not going to sing that uh, this morning. So um, if you're still with me, uh, I just needed to get that off my chest here at the outset. Um, but having, having said that, hopefully it's obvious that the point of the passage isn't the Magi. that The wise men, they're not the point. The point of the passage is the same, the, the, the same point, the same main idea that's run through the book thus far, which is simply this. Matthew, at the outset of his gospel, wants us to know... He wants us to be confident in knowing that the man who takes center stage in his gospel from beginning to end, the one who takes center stage, Jesus, is the one whose whose coming was promised, the one whose birth was supernaturally orchestrated, that this one is the promised king who came to earth to establish God's rule and reign. Okay, the, the main idea is that Jesus is king. That's been Matthew's focus. It's going to continue to be his focus. And so Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, is going to, going to make perfectly clear that Jesus is king. And not only that, but here in this passage, the point he makes that I hope we'll see is showing not only that he's king, but that he is king of kings. In other words, there's, there's no other king like him. He's unique in his role as king. So so that's what hopefully we'll see. Well, let's read the passage. Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, then I'll pray for us, and then we will uh, work through the the passage. So Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. we're in awe that, that you would send your son, the one who has all authority and all power and all dominion, the one who rules this world and everything in it, you would send him to be born in the humble circumstances in the town of Bethlehem. And so praise pray as we work through this, Lord, that you would unite our hearts to, to worship this king, to, to align our lives under his lordship, that we might honor him and serve him all of our days. We thank you for Christ. Lord, help us now as we study your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So the passage, the full of this passage is really simple. It's really a geographic flow. And so the two two main sections that we're gonna how we're gonna break it down uh, center around the travel of these magi, these wise men. So we're gonna see first, verses one through eight, we're gonna see the wise men visit Herod. So they come from the east to Jerusalem. That's the first movement, verses one through eight. Then the second movement, they they go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And so the wise men visit Christ. Okay, so those are just the two points. The wise men visit Herod, then the wise men visit the Christ. We'll see that in verses 9 through 12. And so that's, that's the very simple outline that we're going to follow through. Um, but before we look at that first point and their, their visit to, to Herod, I just want to draw out a dynamic that's at work here. This is why I titled the sermon The King of Kings, because a dynamic here, there's tension right at the outset of these 12 verses. And the tension is seen, if you look there at verse 1, now after Jesus was born... In the days of Herod the king, okay, so there's king number one, and then the very next verse, verse two, the wise men come to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king? Okay, that's king number two, and so that's the tension that, that is established right there at the outset, and, and, and so we know that two kings don't often coexist well together, And so the question that ought to occupy our minds as we read these verses is simply, well, who's who's the real king? Who's the right king? Who's the legitimate king? Because there's two kings on the scene in Matthew 2. So who is the real king? And the irony that's going to unfold here is that king number one, the unworthy imposter king of Israel, Herod, he looks and acts and and is treated by all those in Jerusalem as the rightly ruling king. While the worthy king, the legitimate king of Israel, the true son of David, is the toddler born in a lowly town of Bethlehem to a virgin. And he's the one that has no apparent royalty or power or worth. And what Matthew does is he traces the travel of this group of Gentile stargazers and records their dialogue with with a few individuals in order to make perfectly clear that the true king has come. And and with the advent of the Messiah, Matthew wants us to know that the fullness of time had come. He wants us to know, Matthew wants us to know that in the birth of Christ, God had decreed to bring to fruition all his promises through Christ, through his promised one. And, And the intervention of God in this world in sending the Son, the King of kings, is an event that the world must know about. Matthew wants us to know that this is good news of great joy for all peoples. And these magi at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel serve as a precursor of what's to come because much later on at the very end of Matthew's gospel, if you remember, the risen Christ gives his disciples a a pretty simple command. In Matthew 28, we know it as the Great Commission. He says, go make disciples of all nations. And so this Jesus whose birth was celebrated by these foreign wise men is the same Jesus who after he had accomplished the will of his father says, go tell the world. And, and Jesus can do that in Matthew's gospel because he is the king of kings. He has authority that Herod doesn't have. He has come, and now his kingdom is here. And the message is, go tell. And whether people realize it or not, whether you realize it or not, this king of kings deserves, in fact, he demands our worship. And so what better time than now for us to to think about the king of kings and and how our lives are to be lived and poured out in service and obedience to him as our good king. So that's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see Jesus as the king of kings. Let's look first, verses one through eight. Point one, the visit of the wise men. So they come from the east to Jerusalem. So so right right in verse one, if you look there, Jesus has already been born in Bethlehem, which was a pretty big deal, right? Bethlehem was the town of David. In fact, the, the literal meaning is the house of bread, and so, so that's where Jesus was born, which goes in line with all that Matthew has said in his genealogy and, and the supernatural events surrounding his birth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and we're told that Herod is king. Now, Herod is, he was a, a real king. The history books have, have recorded in detail who this king was. He, in fact, is known as Herod the Great. And he was made king over Judea, over this area, around 37 B.C., and he would reign until 4 AD. In fact, it's not long after Jesus is born that Herod dies. We'll see that next, next, next time we preach in Matthew 2, that Herod dies. So we'll see that. So his reign is coming to an end, but at this point he's, he's ruling and reigning over Jerusalem. He was made king by Rome. So Rome is ruling over this period. And he comes to power because he's appointed to be king of Judea. And something important to know about Herod the Great, which will help us understand what, what happens at the end of chapter 2 is that Herod's pride and evil schemes knew no limit. He was an evil ruler. In fact, history books tell us that he was abnormally paranoid about others taking the throne from him. We see that even in, in chapter 2, don't we? We'll, we'll say more about that. But, but history actually records him killing his wife and two of his sons in order to preserve his rule and reign. And so he, he was an evil king, and we're going to see that in coming weeks. Herod was also known for his massive building endeavors. and In fact, he he maintained peace in the region uh, unlike no other ruler could. Herod would be the one that would build the temple that Jesus would go and worship in, that the the disciples and the apostles would, would, would mostly go to until it was destroyed in A.D. 70. So he was the builder of that and many other majestic things there in Jerusalem and surrounding areas. But he's king while Jesus is born. So Herod's on the throne, and it's the wise men or the magi from the east that come to Jerusalem. And so as I mentioned, the, these men, these wise men, these magi, were part of a, a priestly cast of magicians. In fact, the word magician comes from the Greek word magi. Okay, so, so they're this cast of magicians and astrologers who were wise, not, not in wisdom in terms of biblical wisdom, but wise in terms of interpreting the stars. So, so they're called wise men because they knew how to read the stars, And so all that is said in terms of origin, all that is said in terms of origin is that they come from the east. So they come from the east, whether it's Arabia or Babylon or Persia or Egypt, we just don't know. But they come from the east to Jerusalem. And they came, what we do know for sure is they came because they had seen a star. And they had, however it happened, they had discerned that this star was the star of the king of the Jews. And so they traveled from the east to Jerusalem in search of the king whose star they had seen. And so this star, this is a mysterious star. And the important thing to know about this star is not what it was or how it happened. In fact, you could find whole sermons, whole books written on how this happened. And and there's all kinds of hypotheses on on how this supernatural event happened. And I wanna say, well, that's the point of a supernatural event. You can't explain it, it happened. So some people say it was a supernova, it was Halley's Comet, or it was a planetary conjunction. So so kids, that's a word for you to know, a planetary conjunction. I didn't know what that meant. But but some people say, well, Jupiter and Saturn were were just from the Earth's appearance so close that it was just a brighter star. And so at that time, God ordained that Jupiter and Saturn were so close. And, And all these, maybe there's an answer there, but the point is it's a supernatural event. And it doesn't matter how it happened. What matters is that the star is in the sky and these wise men see it and they say, that's the star of the king of the Jews. We have to go to Jerusalem. In fact, Matthew may be thinking of of all the way back in the book of Numbers with, with the prophet Balaam. He, he was a pretty wicked prophet, but, but Balaam, if you remember the story, he was hired by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites. And instead of cursing them, he actually blesses them. He can't, he can't curse them because God won't let him. And, and in one of his prophecies or predictions in, in Numbers chapter 24, this is what Balaam says about the future and the Lord in Israel. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not, not, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so this could be Matthew saying, hey, the wise men can read the, Balaam's prophecy of the star rising, and they know what it means. And so this prophecy, most likely this star, is meant to, to show us that the, the, the son of David has in fact come, and is the, the Christ who was born to Mary and Joseph. I don't think Matthew wants us to miss the connection. He wants us to know that the star out of David is the promised son of David. And so they searched for him in order to worship him there at the end of verse two. The wise men want to come to worship him. Now, now we, can, we don't know for sure what it means when it says they wanna worship him, it's not necessary, necessary that they want to bow down and hail him as deity, as the Christ, as the Messiah. Maybe that's, maybe that's in their minds, but, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. That's certainly what Matthew intends to communicate as the right response. But they simply want to pay homage to an important person that had been born. They wanted to honor and bestow gifts upon the one who had been born king. And so they, they head on a trek to Jerusalem to do just that. And they, they are welcomed by King Herod. And, and they ask him in front of Herod, where is the one who's born a king? And it's that, it's that title, it's that phrase that, that, that Herod immediately begins, begins to, 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 to go, to, to be afraid internally. The king of the Jews, and, and then his antenna immediately go up. Right? He, do, he doesn't seem to have any concern about the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. All he knows is that when he hears the title of king of the Jews, his fear kicks in. Wait a minute, there's a rival. There's a rival on the scene. Uh, my, my throne is in jeopardy. And so he's troubled, he's in turmoil. And we can see he begins scheming to do whatever it takes to eliminate this potential rival. That's just who Herod was. And so he's troubled when he hears about this king of the Jews. But it's interesting, isn't it, that that Matthew records that all of Jerusalem is troubled with him, do you see that? It's not just Herod, it's all of Jerusalem that's troubled. And so it's not hard to imagine this caravan of wise men from the east caused a bit of stir in the city. And we can also assume they, they are making their business known and that word may have traveled fast. And so maybe it's all of Jerusalem hears about going on. And maybe all of Jerusalem hears, oh, wait a minute, they've come to see the king of the Jews that's not Herod. And so why would all of Israel be troubled? Or why would all of Jerusalem be troubled with Herod? It's probably not because they're afraid there might be another king. In fact, more likely, all of Jerusalem is probably troubled with Herod with Herod, because they know what potential chaos a paranoid and je- jealous Herod can and will cause. And so here, oh no, they're gonna tell Herod that there's another king, we know what's gonna come. And in fact, that fear would be realized later in chapter two, wouldn't it? They're justified in being troubled by this visit because this visit will lead to some awful things for those in Jerusalem. And so what Herod does when he hears that the king of the Jews has been born, look there in verse four, what Herod does is he calls together all the religious experts. And he wants to know, where's the Christ gonna be born? Well, where's this king they're asking about? Well, where's his birthplace? What's remarkably ironic about this interaction is not that the scribes and the chief priests, not that they know. They know exactly where the Messiah is going to be born. They, they, they quote him. They say, oh, oh, we know where that is. That's not the irony. The irony is that not that they know, but it's that they know and they don't seem to care. Did you notice that? These chief priests, these scribes, they're experts in the law. They, they're the ones who knew their Old Testament, the ones who were responsible for, for leading or shepherding God's people. And they aren't looking for the star. They miss it. And even when these pagan stargazers come to Jerusalem asking about the star, it doesn't seem that they could care any less than they do. Oh yeah, we know that is. Yeah, it's in, it's in Judea, in Bethlehem. Yeah, that's where where Messiah's coming. And they don't do anything. I mean, the promised Messiah had been born about six miles away. The, The realization of all of God's promises had come in the child who was born king. And when the news of his star reaches Jerusalem and the scribes, they simply tell Herod what the promise said. I mean, can you believe that? how unbelievably blind these religious leaders were, how remarkably apathetic. They appear to do absolutely nothing about this potentially earth-shaking news of the Messiah. I mean, in light of this, it's not surprising that these are the same scribes who would receive woe after woe after woe after hypocrite after hypocrite from the mouth of the very Messiah that they failed to acknowledge had been born. But at this point, they're simply information tellers, and they give Herod the correct information regarding the Messiah. They tell Herod the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so they know their Old Testament promises and what they quote him is actually a, kind of a, a combination of two Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. The first one, which Will read earlier, was the, the Micah 5 prophecy, but then what they also do, what Matthew does, is he adds a 2 Samuel 5 prophecy regarding what the Lord says specifically to David. And he says, David, you're going to shepherd my people. And so they, they have these two prophecies that are combined. Maybe this is, this is part of how, how the Jews had put together this messianic expectation. Regardless, they tell Herod where the Messiah is going to be born. And unknowingly, they confirm the very point that Matthew's been trying to make thus far in his gospel. Do you see how that happens? Well, Matthew doesn't include his typical thus fulfilling the scriptures, which we'll see in the coming weeks, he indirectly is letting us know that Jesus is the promised Messiah, who is the son of David, because he was born in Bethlehem where the prophet said he would be born. You see that? He's indirectly confirming, yeah, Jesus is the one, something marvelous has taken place in Bethlehem. And so Herod, having heard about the prophecies regarding the Christ, he meets these wise men secretly, so he calls them together again in order to know exactly or precisely when the star had appeared. Now, that'll be important later. It'll become obvious that this information is going to be used by Herod to attempt to, to eliminate the king later in chapter 2. He wants to know this precise date. And so he, he, he asks them, when did it show up? What, what's the time in the day? After confirming that, he, verse 8, he sends them with the charge to search diligently. To, he says, okay, go look intently for this child. Search very, very carefully for the one who's been born king. He wants them to find the king. And, and something that, that's easy to miss here is the wise men came to Jerusalem looking for the king. They didn't know where he was. And so they probably thought, hey, Jerusalem is the capital. See, that's probably where the king is. And so when Herod meets with him in private, he tells him to go to Bethlehem. I mean, so he has to tell them, this is where, it's, well, this is where he's born. Go to Bethlehem, go to a small town. And so he tells them where to go and he sends them with an address, as it were, though. We'll see, they don't really need Herod's help, do they? They have divinely appointed GPS, but Herod tells them and sends them. He says, go, go find him. And we know what the wise men probably don't know yet, which is that the intention of Herod in knowing the exact location of the king is only to be able to, to eliminate him. And we'll see that, that Herod mistakenly, that this is how proud he is. He mistakenly thinks that as long as he utilizes his resources and and plays his cards right, he can eliminate any potential threat, whether the child born in Bethlehem or or the son of his own house. In his mind, I I think this is how it plays out. I'm going to send these Eastern astrologers to do the legwork, then they're going to report back, and I'm just going to send a legion to take care of the problem. All I have to do is dispatch some soldiers, and the threat will be eliminated. And so so Herod is probably really comfortable with his plan. Oh Yeah, they're doing exactly what I want them to do crisis averted, my authority, my power. I'll take care of this. And so we see the depth of his depravity, don't we, when he tells the wise men, report back so that I can join you in worshiping him. I want to worship him too, guys. So, so just go and tell me where to come and I'll bring my gifts. Right? Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. Well, that ends the first movement from, from the east to Jerusalem. And the wise men come, ask him about a star. And then, then Herod sends them to Bethlehem to the Christ. But before we look at our second point, I just want to make, make two points of application here from, from this first movement. And, and I, want, I want us to learn from Herod and the scribes. And so first point of application is simply to, to recognize the temptation of Herod. I mean, isn't it easy in, in Bible passages when we read, our, we, we are naturally prone to associate ourselves with the good guys. And so we read this, we say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm like the wise man. And we're going to see we are called to be like a wise man, but we need to be careful and recognize we are more like Herod than we would probably like to admit. And so we need to ask ourselves, when we see a clear antagonist or bad guy, we need to ask, well, how are we like them? What's the condition that's present there that I can see in my own heart? And the reality is, friend, when it comes to our sovereignty, when it comes to our ability to control things, when it comes to our place on the throne of our lives, we are a lot more like Herod than we realize. You see, Herod was afraid of another sovereign. Herod trembled at the thought of losing authority, of losing control. And the reason he trembled and was afraid of that is because he was God in his own eyes. And when Herod occupied the place of God, when Herod was on the throne, both literally and figuratively, when that's the case, any rival power or authority must be eliminated. And that's what Herod does. And and that, friend, is the place of tension where we live. We're all Herod. At least partly, the natural human heart is Herod. We don't like to be under authority. We don't like not being in control. And the temptation for us is to eliminate or to push aside or to ignore or to refuse to acknowledge that there might actually be another rightful king of our own lives. And so the application is simply to recognize there is one King of Kings. And it's not Herod, and it's not you, and it's not me. The point of application is for us to follow and submit to the rule and the reign of the King of Kings, to obey his commands, to endeavor to honor him above all else, to die to self and to live for him. This is the call. And for us, the initial part of pursuing that call is simply recognizing our own temptation, to refuse and reject that call of submission. And so we just say, Lord, I don't want to obey you sometimes. And I just want you to know that. And I'm sorry, and I want to follow Christ. I want to honor him. So help me. Part of it is just recognizing that, that, that we have this struggle. That's the initial part of pursuing allegiance to the king as we do so, we simply recognize the truth that Jesus is the rightful king and that his rule and his authority, it's not to be feared or refused. Instead, his is a rule. His is an authority that is good and just and is for our ultimate good and joy. So we ought to learn from here, but it's not just here. We ought to learn from the scribes. And what we learn from the scribes is their folly. We ought to learn from the folly of the scribes the scribes were so close and familiar and comfortable with the scriptures. I mean, they probably didn't have to look up the reference regarding the birthplace of the promised Messiah. And yet, despite their habitual religiosity, despite their week-in and week-out church attendance, they were complete strangers to the Messiah who had been born just, five, just six miles down the road. These scribes were suffering from cold, frozen hearts. Their love for God was a thing of the past. And and it seems that they did what they did because that's what they always did. And they were so stuck in their doings, in their religiosity, that they completely missed the entire point of it all. I mean, these these individuals had given their entire lives to the study of the scriptures, which which was pointing to the the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, and they missed it completely. Completely. That is folly, isn't it? That's the folly of the scribes. And I wonder, I honestly wonder, here this morning, how many of you are here for no other reason than that that this is what you always do? Are you so stuck in your religious doings that you miss the entire point I mean that all of this, all this church stuff, Sunday school, fellowship dinner, service, sermons, Christmas eve, singing, Christmas pageants, all this stuff is for the well-being of your soul and my soul. All of it is that we might grow in our love and affections for Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the point. We want you to grow. I want you to love Jesus and become more like Him. If you're more concerned about a budget vote or a change in bylaws or piano than you are about your personal growth in love for Jesus Christ, you're missing the point. But hear me. If I'm more concerned about a budget vote or a change in bylaws or piano than I am about my personal growth in love for Jesus Christ, I'm also missing the point. Jesus Christ is the point. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Herod and the scribes missed it. They didn't recognize the king of kings. And we must not follow in their steps. We must be aware of the ways that we are tempted to miss it like them. Well, having seen the wise men visit Herod, that leaves us only with the the final verses, the few verses there, verses 9 through 12, and and the the wise men visit the Christ. So they leave Jerusalem to go to Bethlehem. And so after visiting with Herod, the wise men out on their journey, they head out a journey that's only about six miles. Depending on their speed, it's a few hours. Not a long journey. At this point, we assume they're set on finding the king and then reporting back to Herod. That, that's probably their mindset as they go. Okay, we're gonna go find him, we're gonna worship him, we're gonna give him our gifts, then we're gonna come back and tell the king what he wanted us to tell him. And while they probably know how to get to Bethlehem or they have directions, verse 9 says, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So, so this is, you can't explain this with a meteor or anything else. This is a supernatural activity in the heavenlies. It doesn't matter how you try and explain the first appearance of the star up in verse 2. None of those explanations explain what happens here. This is none other than a supernatural divine intervention. God himself is the only possible explanation behind this celestial activity. The star goes before them, so it's moving, and then it comes to rest over the place where Jesus was. I mean, you can't explain that. And this star is reason for great or exceeding joy for these wise men. I mean, these wise men rejoice exceedingly with great joy, Matthew says. And I don't think it's because they, they have a divinely operated GPS. I think it's because they know we're close. We're close to the king. This journey that started long before Jerusalem from the east is now on its final leg, and, and they're close to the finish line. I think they're rejoicing and excited and, and anticipating who they might find. In verse 11, seeing the star rest over the place where he was, verse 11, they go into the house, and they saw the child with Mary his mother. They walk in the house, they see the child, they see his mother, they don't ask any questions, they don't have to, have to identify who we're here to see. They see him, they know immediately who he is and they fall down and worship him. They fall face down and worship him. Then opening their treasures, they are from gifts. And so these wise men in this scene They had met their intended end. Their journey had reached its final destination. They'd come to worship the king of Jews, and at the end of it all, they came down, they fell down, and worshipped the king of the Jews. They know he's the one, and they fall down and pay homage to this king. They worship the child who was born king. You see, he wasn't born in order to become king, so, so, so it's not as though, oh, well, you're going to be king, and when you are king, then we'll worship you. No, he was born king, and so when they see him, they worship him because he was king at birth. And they fall down, and they worship this child. And so these foreign dignitaries, certainly they, they, they had some wealth. They're on their faces recognizing the superiority of a child, a toddler there in Bethlehem. All their robes, all their garb, whatever they have on, they're, they're down on their faces before a toddler. I mean, I have toddlers. What's the toddler doing at this point? Is he laughing? Mom, mommy, what's going on? But these grown men are face down before this child. And they're doing so because they recognize the superiority. They recognize that this is the king. I mean, what an uncomfortable and upside down scene taking place in this tiny house in Bethlehem so they fall down and worship, not only that, but Matthew also says they give, give treasures or gifts. And these are costly gifts. I mean, I think that's all we can take from this. That it's gold, frankincense, myrrh. And I think this shows the royal nature of this interaction. I mean, many commentators point to the Queen of Sheba, and she, she's a foreign queen that comes to visit Solomon, the king of Jerusalem, and she brings lots of gifts. It's a, it's a royal scene, and I think that's what is, is communicated here. I mean, there are lots of people who want to ascribe specific and sometimes peculiar symbolism to these individual gifts, but Matthew doesn't tell us any of that. All he says is, here were the gifts. And all Matthew seems to want to convey is that these wise men who traveled from faraway lands made their journey for the sole purpose of honoring the one who was born king and worshiping him as king of kings. And so we have these pagan stargazers falling down, worshiping the one who was born king of the Jews while in the meantime, the scribes and high priests and other Jews are back in Jerusalem, oblivious to what's taking place just down the road. Just think about that. And then the wise men, after seeing the Christ, after worshiping him, we don't know how long their stay is what they do, but but afterwards they're they're set to go back, presumably by way of Herod to report back to him and they are warned in a dream. That doesn't say who gave the dream, but we know who gave the dream, don't we? There's only one dream giver in Matthew's gospel. The Lord says, don't do that. Don't go back to Herod, just go home. And so they return, going back east to their own country by another way. Thus, at least for now, thwarting Herod's plan to eliminate the newborn king. I mean, isn't that, isn't that divine sovereignty in action? His plan is not gonna be thwarted. The virgin's gonna conceive and the wise men are gonna be warned and go a different way. And, and later we're gonna see Joseph is gonna be warned to, to, to move away. Right, so, so divine sovereignty is in play here. God continues to sovereignly control the events and circumstances surrounding this king. And ending with the wise men and their encounter with the king of kings leaves us here with one point of application. And this, this is the final, final call here. And that's simply follow the wise men. Follow the magi. That, that's the point, isn't it? And these are examples to follow. Here in these magi, we have an example to emulate. One commentator commentator says that Matthew 2, these verses specifically give us a powerful and in many senses prophetic picture of joyful, reverent worship. I mean, they're joy-filled, they're exceeding joy, they're, they're bowing down, they're worshiping. This commentator continues that these 12 verses teach us that the global purpose of God is the glad praise of Christ among the peoples of the world. And so this is the call. And so as we behold the wise men face down before Christ, we ought to see a picture of worship and adoration, a a picture of honor and praise, a a picture that ought to picture our lives. We recognize a call is for us to do the same. Whether you're in need of coming to Christ for the first time, like these wise men and coming face to face with him for the first time, or whether you're in need of being reminded to come to Christ again for the hundredth time, the call and response is the same, which is come and worship the king. The king has been born, there's good news. The king has come to save his people from their sins and he's done it. He was born to die and it's happened, it's finished. That's good news. And so my prayer is that you would do that Come and worship the king this season, these these coming days, and more than that, the rest of your days. My prayer is that you would worship Christ until your breath leaves your earthly body. That's my prayer. That's a prayer for my children. That's my prayer for all of you, that you would find yourselves indefinitely bowed down in adoration, awe, and worship of our king. And so that's the call, come and worship. If you're not a believer, the call is for you to come and bow down. He deserves, he demands your worship. And is a good king who laid down his life that you might live. And so if you wanna know what it means to come and worship Christ and, and find your, your, your hope and your joy in him, I would love to talk to you about it. So talk to me, I, w- I, w- I want you to know how you can come to know this king. But if you're a believer, I know, that, I know that's a lot of you here. If you're a believer, worship the king of kings. Recommit again. I want to honor you. Confess ways that you failed to do that. Start again right now. Take up your cross today and follow him. So the call of the wise men is come and see, but there's more than that. While this isn't explicitly from from the example of the wise men, an explicit example from Matthew's gospel as a whole is that this news, this call to come and worship the king, it's not just come and see but it's also a go and tell. Matthew begins his gospel with the nations coming to Jerusalem to worship Christ in the form of these magi, but it ends with Christ commissioning his followers to take the gospel to all nations. And so we're doing justice to Matthew's gospel by emphasizing the second aspect. It's not just come and see, come and worship, but it's go and tell others to come and worship. And so maybe you just need to be encouraged to go and tell. Go and tell. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have received good news of great joy, whether it's in Sunday school, whether it's from your parents, whether it's on your bedroom, whether, whether it's you're alone reading the Bible, whether it's you're watching a TV preacher, listening to, however, however the Lord worked in your life, you have received good news of great joy. You've accepted Christ. You've, you've put your faith in him. You've heard the herald angels sing. You've seen the Christ. You've seen the fulfillment of God's plan for the world. And now you have hope that others need to know about and so the call for you and for me is go and tell others to come and see. And so I just want to encourage us as a church, and I may be wrong in this, so maybe I'm just encouraging myself up here, but I often lack in my zeal for going and telling. I mean, when's the last time that you told another person face-to-face the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, maybe you've been a believer for decades, for years, when have you, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a coworker, a stranger, when's the last time you said, let me just tell you good news. Let me tell you what God has done for you. And don't be ashamed if if you can't remember the last time. Here, now, is a day for God to graciously remind you that we have a gospel that's go and tell. And so let's encourage one another. Pray for opportunities and just start talking. I mean, poor, poor people that, that come and ask us for help, what we do now as a church, what Will and I do is we, we make them come and sit down and talk with the pastors and you know what we do every time? And it's been one of the most encouraging things that I think I've done in weeks. They come in and we sit in Evelyn's classroom and we, we hear about their story. Okay, what's your situation? Tell us, show us, show us your bill. Okay, we, we can probably help. We're gonna see about that. But let us tell you some good news. And we explicitly share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is so encouraging for me because that reminds me, this is why we do this. And so if you feel your heart cold, share the good news. You have grandkids? Tell them the gospel. You have coworkers? You have unbelieving spouses? Tell them the good news. Remind yourself of it in doing so and have your heart warmed. Friends, we have a message of go and tell. We've been commissioned by the King of Kings, so we have good authority on which to go and tell. Let's pray as we close.